Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Kayla T. Daniel, PhD, is known as the naughty nutritionist due to her ability to outrageously and humorously debunk national na- nutritional myths. She is the co-author of the best-selling book, Nourishing Broth, an old-fashioned remedy for the modern world. Her work has been endorsed by leading health experts, including Drs. Mer- uh, Joseph Mercola, Larry Dossie, and David Brownstein, among others. She has been a guest on The Dr. Oz Show, PBS Healing Quest, NPR's People's Pharmacy, and many other shows, and has appeared on stages worldwide, including at PaleoFX. She is also the author of The Whole Soy Story, The Dark Side of America's Favorite Health Food, which we will be discussing today, thanks to one of our favorite former guests, Lear Keith, author of The Vegetarian Myth, who strongly recommended hosting Kayla on our show. Kayla Daniel, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, you mentioned before we got on the air that it would be fun to have you kind of introduce yourself. You have done so much. We had to make some edits to our introduction. So why don't you tell us some of the things you've been up to recently? Well, I'll be brief. Uh, I am the naughty nutritionist, so I move into controversial territory. And with nutrition, often what we're told is good is bad for us, and what's bad is good for us, and so it goes. So I'm a bit of a contrarian. (laughs) If you like controversy, Uh, nutrition is the best place to be. You're in the right place. So I've got a a history like many people have that I was sick and tired for years and years. I tried every diet out there. I was vegan. I was, uh, uh, I was low starch. I was, um, you know, food combining. I did Ayurvedic. I did Chinese. I did everything until I found my way back to what I would now describe as an ancestral diet, a traditional diet that includes plenty of meat and is not shy about fat and eggs and all these other good traditional foods. And through that started my path to becoming healthy. And now at 72, much healthier than I ever was at 42. That We talk about that all the time. I don't know what it is about this world where people are aging, I think, but they're looking younger and younger and younger as the time goes. It's like the curious case case of Benjamin Button around the like primal and paleo world, especially <laughs> as you get to like low-carbon carnivore. People just seem like they're thriving and enjoying life, and they don't look like they're aging at all. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, okay, so we mentioned we're going to be talking about your book, The Whole Soy Story. Um, This is not a new book. This wasn't published last year or the year before. This was 2005, I believe. Is that correct that you published your book? That's correct. It's a great book. Um, I was able to find it. It's fantastic. You're really funny in it. I love all like the subtitles and the chapters and everything. You did a really great job with that. Let's let's rewind a little bit. How were you able to kind of discover this story? Because again, this was quite a while ago where I don't think a lot of people were aware of any of this that's going on with soy. Sure. Well, back in the late uh, 1980s and through the 1990s, uh, I was reading all of these articles about soy, you know, the joy of soy, the soy of cooking. Soy was supposed to cure everything from cancer to ingrown toenails. It sounded like it was cheap. It was wonderful. It would solve the problems of world hunger. And I started looking into it. I mean, I wanted to believe that. I mean, wouldn't you want to believe that, that this inexpensive food could could be such a miracle fix for everything? 
Well, the science didn't support that. And the more I started looking into it, the worse it was looking. And I realized this wasn't just a simple article. It wasn't even a book I could wrap up in a few months. It was going to take four long years. And I ended up deciding to earn a PhD in nutritional sciences. And the soy story became my dissertation. Wow. So just a, a version of it that was a little more academic than the book that came out. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting. But as part of my PhD program, I really had to delve very deeply into the science. And I worked with the great uh, lipid chemist, Dr. Mary Ennig, who's the woman who courageously exposed all the dangers of trans fats. And she was on my committee and... Um, Health committee member. I had to be good. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. So that must have been interesting to take a quote unquote healthy food that you think is, is, you know, net positive. This is a really great and healthy thing to then learning that like, okay, maybe it's a neutral thing. Maybe it's not as healthy as we were told, but I think it's a whole other thing to learn that like, no, this is the net negative. This is actively doing some really, really bad things. What was that experience like for you? It was sobering because you want to believe most of what you're reading is accurate or it's even coming from people who have integrity. But you discover there's very deep corruption right across the whole field of science, actually. Researchers are beholden to the soy industry or to, you know, big pharma, uh, the food industry, uh, specifically the soy industry, which is absolutely huge. And that's where the research dollars are. And that's if they want to work, if they want to hold their academic positions, they often have to please the people who have the money. Yeah. So in the good old days, before you were even born, Casey, um, you know, scientists were more able to be honest scientists because they would get a job. And of course, there were always some poor scientists and good scientists, but they weren't having to look at the money all the time. So they were more likely to be honest. So some of those old studies are amazing. And when we're looking at the soy story, uh, we have years and years of USDA scientists doing work on animals, uh, studying soy and animals, because their task was to find a way to make soy better so they weren't killing the animals prematurely. So they liked the fact that soy was tanking the thyroid of the animals because they got fat quicker. So that was a good thing. But they wanted to keep them alive long enough to get the big and profitable. So these USDA scientists were doing some amazing work that our government supported, maybe supported for the wrong reason, but the work got done. So that's why there's so many studies on soy, so much research, much of it good research. And some of those scientists were still alive at the point I began researching this. So to be able to talk with them was a real honor. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Well, in your book, you talk a little bit about the history of soy, which I really really appreciate it because I, you know, we're, most of us are born in this world where there's like grocery stores and there's lots of grains and there's soda shops and we can buy apples 365 days out of the year that that is all of those are so new to the human experience. But when they're 
normalized, that's the only thing you know, you forget that they are very new things. And we don't often question like, okay, what are these things doing to us? So if we go back in the history of soy, how long have we coexisted with soy as a foodstuff? Not very long. And that surprises people. Uh, totally surprises people. Soy was always valued traditionally as a fertilizer. So wow. they would grow soy between crops and uh, plow it under. Now, it's a fabulous fertilizer. As I understand I mean, it, I understand it, as I understand it, it secures nitrogen back into the soil. Is that what it does? Yes, it does. Okay, sorry to interrupt. So, so I do say some good things about soy. I mean, it's a spectacular fertilizer. <laughs> Uh, But it traditionally was not eaten. They had to find ways to make it so it was more digestible so that people could actually do fairly well on it. So so they found that if they fermented it into miso, that that became a good food in Japan, that natto, the the bacterial activation of the soy is very healthy, uh, but one only eats small amounts of miso and natto. I mean, you can have a whole cup of miso soup and you're just talking a teaspoon, two teaspoons, maybe a tablespoon. This is not a huge amount of soy. Yeah. And likewise, natto. I mean, it's very strong. They have special rooms in the restaurants where the natto eaters are because nobody else wants to smell it. (laughs) That's strong. And in fact, it is very healthy. The bacteria are producing a lot of really good vitamin K2. I mean, just what we want. Wow. But tofu, fairly recent invention, uh, soy milk, people are shocked to find, was invented by the Seventh-day Adventist missionaries from America. So this really surprises people. And people say, well, why are you down on the, the missionaries? Well, I'm not. They had the very best intentions in the world. They saw a lot of hungry people and they thought there's all these soybeans. Why don't we make a nourishing milk? And likewise, they were seeing babies where the mom had died or for some reason the baby needed nutrition. And they had the bright idea. Actually, it started in Baltimore. Soy infant formula It started in Baltimore. Wow. Didn't start in Asia. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So so is this crop, we know this crop can grow in many places around the world, but did it originate like in the Midwest where we see a lot of it today or was it, was it very limited locations around the world? Well, more in Asia. I mean, ben Franklin got excited about it. He found it in France and brought it home, you know, to grow a few plants. Uh, it has seemed like an exciting thing to many, many good people. Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the... Yeah. Re- you really, you mentioned the religious aspect aspect, which I absolutely love talking about the Seventh Day Adventists and John Harvey Kellogg and all that stuff. It's such an interesting history. But I will say one thing that surprised me about what you were just saying, reading it in your book, is this: the consumption was very small, and probably to this day, is it still pretty low in those same areas, Japan, China, kind of, kind of that area of Asia? Yeah, that's what gets really interesting because. The average consumption in Asia is actually really small, no matter where we're looking. But we have to remember, Asia is a large continent, many different countries, many different dietary lifestyle uh, differences. But the place where we see the highest soy consumption is actually in the monasteries. 
because the monks discovered that soy consumption was great to help them with their vows of celibacy. So they noticed, I think, that when the tofu consumption went up, the libido went down. Wow. Wow. I don't know why I find that surprising. That's so funny that you mentioned monks. I was just going to ask you, I remember watching a great episode of Chef's Table, the show on Netflix that shows like some of the the best top chefs all over the world. And they did one specifically, I want to say it was in Korea, but it was with a monk who was using soy sauces that had been fermenting for literally over a hundred years. It has, has soy sauce itself been a product that's been consumed in high amounts uh, over the course of history? I wouldn't say high amounts, uh, but we have to remember that the soy sauce in most of the stores now is not a traditionally fermented product. So I use a little soy soy sauce. I use a little miso. People are always very surprised that, that I don't mind a little here and there, but I don't have a tank thyroid and it's very occasional for me and it's small amounts. Small amounts. Yeah. I think that's the big thing. Um, you know, the dose makes the poison. If you're eating a lot of high oxalate foods like spinach and sweet potatoes and, you know, beets and all these things, those can accumulate, but that doesn't mean it's in small quantities, a problem for everybody all the time. I think it's better to avoid the whole thing and just eat lots of meat like you said. But, um, yeah, that is a really interesting. You're, You're mentioning oxalates because that's something I've been delving into recently. Very interesting topic. And the reason that so many people who don't seem to get better doing anything else, uh, uh, they have to eliminate oxalate from their diet and some of these other plant toxins. So once again, we're talking plant toxins, all these things like soy, high in oxalate. Yeah. And you have a whole list of those plant toxins, which we can get into as well. But yeah, this, this oxalate thing, it, it's really come out of nowhere for me personally. And we've talked to Sally Norton. We've talked to Monique Attinger, who's also doing work with oxalate. And I've, I've told both of them, this is either, this is either like a nothing burger that, that is not really as big of a deal as you guys are saying it is, or this is a huge problem and way more people are experiencing issues from oxalate than we assume. And I, I'm leaning towards the latter. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you pick the say low oxalate vegetables and then you end up with the ones that are high in lectins or high in goitrogens. I mean, uh, there's some value for sure. In my opinion, do going straight carnivore, no complications. Take your pick. Yeah. Which plant toxin do you want? Do you want, do you want the lectins? <laughs> do, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I do. I'm, I'm with you. I think it's a lot easier to just stick with the foods that are safe because with plant foods, yes, you can prepare them. Yes. There's things you can do with them. Yes. You can eat them, but there's always going to be a question. Is this going to affect me or not? I don't know. It, or, am I going to build up with, with oxalates? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe. Well, most of us are eating so many of them, it's very hard to tease out what's actually the problem for us. And so many of the elimination diets, like Whole30, for example, guess what? You go on that diet and you remove some likely culprits, but the, what they're having people eat, very high oxalate lectin the whole bit. Yeah, so interesting. Okay, wow. So let's go back to the celibacy thing and let's relate that. <laughs> <laughs> let's relate that to the Seventh-day Adventist. What in the world does a religion and John Harvey Kellogg have anything to do with the story of soy? 
John Harvey Kellogg, well, let's let's be fair, he lived into his 90s. So, I mean, that guy had some longevity. So he might have been doing something right, even if it was just having a cause he believed in. But he thought sex was a sin and that no one should ever have sex. Now, he was married. Uh, he had 40 kids. How many times do you think he had sex in wow. his lifetime? Wow. Most people would say uh, 40, but the kids were all adopted. Oh, wow. So it appears that he had mumps when he was growing up and he lost the ability to have sex plus the desire. And since he couldn't have any fun, he didn't think anybody else should either. Apparently, (laughs) (laughs) But he wasn't the other among those people who who thought sex was a sin. Um, uh, Graham, who founded the Graham Crackers way back in the day, he was going around the country preaching about the ills of sex and, you know, um, the carnivores, you know, carnal knowledge, sex and carnivores went together. He noticed that. So he's putting people on things like these graham crackers, which are not the graham crackers we have today, which are loaded with sugar. These were things that had no flavor and could break your teeth. They were hard as rock. Wow. So he was on that bully pulpit talking about sex and sin and he had crowds. What can I say? Wow. Of course, now it's turned on its head and all the vegans are acting like they're the sexiest people on the planet and we need to just be eating more bananas and that supposedly helps our guys. So yeah, what best, can I say? Best of luck. <laughs> God God bless. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so interesting. I got to ask Belinda Fetke this question. Like, okay, that was a long time ago, right? John Harvey Kellogg, that's over a century ago that he was doing his work. What That doesn't have anything to do with me sitting here in 2022. Most people have no idea how much those influences still, to this day, affect what people think is healthy and what people think is unhealthy. Yeah, yeah. Still to this day, because that's where the money is. The money is in grains. The money is in soy. I mean, for that matter, it's in pea protein. Like the companies that stock the soy, they're all doing pea protein. And we don't have as much research on it, but I would distrust it just as much. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so what? how, how did soy increase in our diets and in production? Was it a, a a supply thing or a demand thing? Were we needing more in, in the demand side or were we just growing so much of it that we needed to figure out something to do with it? Well, there was plenty of su- supply and using some very good advertising and marketing and enlisting scientists, they created a demand. So the situation was this. They started to split the soybean to make soy oil. So we have the cheap Wesson oils and all of the oils that most people are using. And certainly we find in all the fast foods that are so unhealthy. So they split the soybean and the oil was being used and was profitable. But what were they going to do with the protein? You don't really want to have to pay to dump it in a landfill, right? There was only so much they could feed to animals. And the researchers had worked on that. So they thought, well, let's feed it to people. But the problem was they had a very big image problem because the only people eating a whole lot of soy or certainly soy protein would be like Russia, Cuba, communist countries, uh, poor countries, poor people had an image problem. 
So they had to flip that. So the wealthy people would desire soy. So they turned it into a health food. And this was a really brilliant strategy. And they hired scientists to produce the the studies. And we all know that there's a lot of flaws to most research. Uh, starting with like who who sponsored the study, who paid for the study. But they did a lot of things very clever. For example, uh, if you wanted to make Snickers bars look healthy, how would you do that? Maybe you do a study comparing them to Twinkies because in that kind of comparison, they would come out looking pretty good. Right. So with soy, they did most of the studies comparing it to casein, which is the part of milk that you take apart that is really poor quality and causes all sorts of health problems. So finding soy is just as good as casein or even better than casein doesn't mean a whole lot to those of us who are trying to be healthy. So most of the studies compare soy to casein. And can, can go on. I mean, when you start looking at it, you just find confounder after confounder. It's just uh, not good, not good research. Yeah. So what were the health claims? What were they saying was healthy about soy? The health claim that the FDA passed in 1999 is soy prevents heart disease. And the FDA should never have done that. And at this point, that's been uh, retracted after years and years of work, of which I was part of that with the petitions to the FDA. Uh, But the idea was passing that health claim. And then on all of the packages of soy food, it would say soy helps prevent uh, heart disease, and they had some kind of disclaimer, you know, in the context of an otherwise good diet, blah, blah. Uh, but people seeing that health claim, they started to believe it. And of course, there was a whole lot of media attention at the time, and the magazines are full of all the wonders of soy. I mean, we couldn't escape it. Wow. Plus, uh, a lot of healthy people were pushing soy, and some of them seemed to be doing pretty good, but they were probably also exercising, uh, had other good lifestyle choices, probably not going to McDonald's, for example. So even now, with the claims changing and being withdrawn, so many people still believe that soy is healthy. And the big regret for me is the book came out in 2005, but we still need the book. People, people still haven't gotten the message. Yeah, seems worse now. It's they're just brilliant about how they do things. Like it's not called margarine anymore; it's called plant-based butter. Like everything is quote it's plant-based oil, not seed oils. Like like they they're really clever about how they market things. So the, I mean, the, I've, I've, go ahead. I've seen packages that say plant-based cookies. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah, it's it's enticing. And, and you know, it's empowering. People think I'm you know, I'm not only doing my own health a favor by choosing these products. I am doing a favor for the entire planet. I am choosing the very best foods that will help my health and help the planet and it's ethically moral and and so it sucks. It's it's a really good marketing marketing technique. It's almost like game changers. This is a very expensive advertisement for pea protein. It's exactly what it is. It, it sure is. But, you know, in the fitness community going way back, I mean, all the old time bodybuilders, they all knew that soy was was garbage. Um, Vince Gerondas called it shit. I mean, 
No. Uh, and so it went. And those people were not eating soy. They were eating massive amounts of meat. They were eating gallons of raw milk. They were using gelatin, um, which is related to bone broth, which maybe we'll discuss in a bit. But they were not eating soy. They knew it was terrible. But somehow, even in the fitness business, so many shakes are soy-based. Yeah, yeah, I see it all the time. You mentioned the claims, the health claims in the 90s um, being approved by the FDA. Before that, you know, back when we were trying to increase consumption of soy, what were some of the health claims back then? Well, people were claiming it cured everything, but until that FDA health claim went through, nobody was paying attention. I see. So the soy industry pushed for that. And after they got it, their their um, gross sales went from well under a billion to four billion within a couple of years. It just shot right up. Wow. And the soy industry then wanted to get a soy prevents cancer claim. And I was involved with a number of top scientists. We petitioned the FDA uh and they, uh, the soy industry, uh, Soleil, one of the big, big companies, they did withdraw the petition and they never resubmitted it. So we managed to stop that. Wow. wow. And it's taken forever to get rid of the heart one. Uh, but fortunately, even the American Heart Association, which is not all that progressive in most respects, they recognize that soy is just well, they were calling it just a food that it doesn't have miraculous powers in terms of cardiovascular benefits. I mean, at this day and age, it's 2022. Couldn't you couldn't you be closer to claiming that soy causes cancer versus soy prevents cancer? That's ridiculous. There's a lot of studies that do suggest it causes cancer. Uh, it causes cancer, contributes to cancer, accelerates the growth of cancer. That's not to say that some component of soy, like genistein, for instance, could be extracted and used with some people as a, you know, a chemo agent of some sort. Wow. Maybe it has benefits used with the right dose, with the right match of a person with the right kind of cancer. But that's very different than telling every man, woman and child in this country they should eat a whole lot of soy because it prevents heart disease and cancer and Problems with menopause. I mean, we can go on the health claims. Yeah, I definitely want to tackle that. Before we do, what what are the main food products that we eat that have a lot of soy in them? How are we consuming soy today? And then a follow-up question to that would be, where are some of the surprising places where you find soy? Uh, the surprising places are that it's in just about everything. It's in close to 100% of fast food. So... You and me are probably not eating any of that. So, but people who are eating a lot of processed and packaged foods are going to find a lot of soy is in the ingredients. And finding the list of ingredients, say for something at Burger King, I mean, you really have to search on the websites to, to get that kind of answer, which is a real problem for the people with severe allergies. And there are a lot of people with soy allergies. But in terms of other foods, Canned tuna may have soy protein added to it. So a lot of people feel, well, it must be healthy. So, and there's a health claim. And if I can't taste it because the tuna flavor overrides it, they don't mind it. Wow. 
Yeah, there's just a lot of people who won't consciously eat soy because it tastes so bad. I mean, it's like an impossible burger. You try it once and nobody's going to go back for seconds. Wow, I'm going to have to take your word for that. I've never tried one and I'm sure you never have either. So <laughs> the, the, yeah, they can they can take that. I'm, I'm not touching that. Are, do we, because of the taste, do we fry anything in soy or are those other oils? That's an interesting question. It's going to depend on the company. I would say most of the fast food chains are still using the cheapest oil possible, which would be heavily soy. However, if you go to Whole Foods Market, everything is fried up or cooked up or sautéed up in canola oil, everything. And that's that's a pretty bad product for us. Yeah, I will link this video to the notes. I don't know how many times I've linked this video to the notes. We talk about this one a lot, but if you watch the video, uh, how how canola oil is made from the How It's Made TV series, it is absolutely disgusting. You cannot believe that they are not using this chemical product and this oil as anything other than like gasoline or engine lubricant or something. And it's like, no, we take that and we dump it into our bodies. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But nobody can make a big profit with something like duck fat or butter or or even coconut oil. Um, but tallow, lard, the good quality ones, those are not cheap products to produce and not cheap to buy. That's right. I'm glad you made that point. And this might be a good aside to talk about the different types of fats and why it matters that we choose those fats that you mentioned versus some of these other seed oils or vegetable oils. People hear the term vegetable oil. They don't really know the difference between vegetable oil or olive oil, which is more uh, mono um, un- unsaturated or, you know, something like butter or lard. That's more sat- coconut, very high saturated. What, what, why does it matter? What are the differences between those? Well, without getting into a chemistry, chemistry lesson, I just like to make a, a common sense observation about it. Now, you and I could make butter. It's easy to make butter. You and I could squeeze olives and make olive oil. It doesn't take high-tech factories to do any of that. We could make coconut oil. Uh, Any of the traditional fats, we can make lard, we can make tallow. It's not that complicated. Our ancestors did it at home. Everybody did it. We have a very different situation with soy or canola. It takes a gazillion dollar factory where they can take those beans and smash them up and pull the oil out of them. It takes chemicals. It takes high temperature, high pressure. If you try to make soybean oil in your own kitchen, you would fail. Great. On the other hand, you know, you could make avocado oil, you could make olive oil. I've made butter myself from a high fat, you know, high cream milk. It's it's not that hard to do. Yeah, essentially, I'm kind of thinking of anything I can take in my hand and squeeze and like fat would like literally ooze out. And that doesn't happen with some of these seeds. They only have a tiny amount of polyunsaturated fat that actually helps the seed reproduce and grow. It needs it for that purpose. And we're going in and taking high quantities of these going through that crazy process that you mentioned. Let's let's have one more question about the heating up of those oils. Why is it a problem to heat up canola oil or uh, soybean oil or corn oil where it's a lot less of a problem to heat up a cooking fat like butter, lard, tallow, some of these other ones that you mentioned? Well, heat and oxygen and light are the enemies of fats staying healthy fats. Uh, oils 
go rancid very, very quickly. And the enemy of oils is light, oxygen, and heat. So when we use any of those, if you buy them in a bottle, it should be a small bottle. Um, you should take care of it. And if you smell anything off, you should toss it immediately. Yep. Yeah, that's perfect. Where a saturated fat, like an animal fat, would be solid at room temperature and, and reacts with oxygen and light way less because it doesn't have any of those double bonds, correct? Right, right. So so they're they're hard to kill. Okay, perfect. Okay, thank you for that explanation. I really appreciate that. Let's talk about the health uh, the health issues that we have with consuming soy. What are some of the more obvious health issues that we have with soy and what kinds of problems are they creating? The first thing we usually see is digestive problems and those are the lucky people because they get a tummy ache and they decide they don't want to do it anymore. Uh, the more unfortunate people don't have that kind of reaction and much farther down the road, they'll notice they are having, say, thyroid problems and reproductive problems, libido problems, menstrual problems, menopausal problems, uh, many, many problems there. Uh, but they're not associating it with the soy because it's not an immediate cause and effect. So let's see, let us count the ways it can go bad. I mean, the thyroid is huge and many populations are at risk for that. Um, babies put on soy formula, they very heavily have thyroid problems for the rest of their lives uh, because the baby is getting nothing but soy formula. Uh, so little, little body, a big dose of the soy formula and there are repercussions and could go into some of the reproductive problems they have as well. The women are over, the girls are over estrogenized and many of them starting their puberty at eight years old now. Um, I've heard stories of babies down, toddlers down to three years old, you know, what? developing breasts, menstruating. What? They were on soy formula. Yeah. That's crazy. I knew it was getting younger and younger, but that's insane. Yeah. And with uh, African-American women who are more often put on soy formula than Caucasian women, uh, their puberty is even earlier than the Caucasian girls. So there you go. Uh, with boys, it's uh, more often they're estrogenized, they're feminized, uh, depending on the amount they got. They may not go through puberty normally. And it's hard to associate cause and effect because when it was a baby, it got the soy formula and the effects might not show up until 13, 14, 15, teenager. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people don't know that with a, a little baby boy that there are points when they have a testosterone surge that's actually equal to that of a grown man. And it's basically programming them to go from boy to man later on in life. And if they're on soy formula and there's all those estrogens in the testosterone sites and estrogens interfering with testosterone production, we get problems. And we have an epidemic of boys with um, gynecomastia, which in the man boobs, we're seeing that all the time. Of course, with older men, too, you know, they're estrogenized as they're getting older. And, yep. uh, but soy is one of the major factors with the teenage boys. 
No, it would not be fair to say soy is the only factor because we're in a very toxic environment. We've got drinking water that is full of uh, estrogens from birth control pills, um, hormone replacement, you know, whatever women are taking for menopause or for birth control is ending up in the water supply. We're talking plastics, uh, food packaged in plastics. We're talking pesticides, herbicides. There's so many ways people are estrogenized now. I wish I could say soy was the only culprit, but it's not. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I've wondered about that a lot. I've definitely noticed this around us here in the Salt Lake Valley. I noticed that the girls are maturing way earlier and the boys are really short until they start getting a lot older. And so you're seeing that delta between the two just get wider and wider and wider. And those are the ages where our mental health around here is terrible. It is a huge, huge problem. It seems to be getting worse and worse all the time. And I wonder if that's a really big part of that. It's it's a really big part, especially if the baby has been put on soy formula. And the reason being because that's the, the only thing they're eating. So if a child is growing up in a vegetarian household, maybe they're also getting a lot of soy, a lot of tofu, a lot of soy milk. Uh, and then you get into the problems so many people are having anymore with modern dairy, with all the problems with ultra pasteurization and yeah. homogenization and factory farming cows. And there's so many reasons that people will go from something that's really bad commercial milk to something that's even worse, soy milk. Wow. That's crazy. I'm going to link another video in the show notes. This was, this concept was introduced to me much later. I don't know why it surprised me, honestly, but like the expose on Nestle in particular and what they were doing with formulas, the way they were marketing them in third world countries and literally causing the death of millions of babies from these poor families who were diluting the milk out. And I didn't realize this either until this was brought up in this video, which we'll tag. I, I can't forget who did it. I can't remember who did it, but we'll tag it. There's a reason why in hospitals, the mother's room where she has the baby is kind of like nowhere near where the actual nursery is. They formula companies are the idea behind that. You try to separate the mom from the baby. So you can, you can stop that, that the, the breastfeeding as soon as possible, because if you can stop it, even interrupt it for a very small amount of time, the mom will stop breastfeeding. And now that baby has no choice, but to be brought up on formula. Have you heard about any of that? Oh yeah, it's it's just heartbreaking. I, it's 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 almost hard to believe that something so evil exists, but it's it's true. So they starve the baby as quickly as possible with all sorts of free stuff, and then in those countries, the people at that point the breast milk's dried up, and they can't afford to buy the formula, and then they're diluting it, and and the story. Well, it goes on. It's it's not good. Is is money that awesome to have a lot of? Like, is it is it worth going to those levels to have that much money and like work in these food systems? Is that worth it? I can't imagine it myself, but <laughs> I guess you and I aren't. That's got to be an amazing, amazing yacht or an amazing Ferrari or something. I don't know. I I I don't think the price of a soul is is worth all of that. That's crazy. Wow. Well, when I went to some of the big soy conferences, you know, the big symposia where they're discussing all the research, where there's a lot of papers presented, which I went to for about, let's see, four or five years, I went to the conferences. 
And I went in secret. Nobody there knew I was a book. No, nobody knew there was a book. I was protective of my life, basically. Smart, smart. So I went just as a dumb journalist and I'm overhearing everybody saying all the things I needed to hear for the book. Uh, But one thing I do have to say is most of the scientists and the young people coming up, they actually believed soy could be good. They thought they were doing good things with going into this area. Uh, They were as fooled as anybody. It's just the people at the top who totally knew. Wow. Wow. Just unintended consequences. That's okay. That's crazy. So, okay. So we've gone through the history of soy. We've upped the production. We've upped the consumption. These are the health issues. What kinds of tips and tricks do you recommend for people to start to get this stuff out? Is it similar to oxalate where you need to kind of back out of it more slowly and it's a little bit harder to do go cold turkey? Or is this something that you recommend that people just get off as soon as possible? Well, it's easier than the oxalate issue because uh, if you cut out all processed and packaged foods and fast foods, uh, right there, you're going to eliminate just about all of it. So people generally know they're eating soy if they're buying tofu or or some of the, if it says soy milk, they know it's soy. So it's not hard to discover it. There's nothing tricky about that. So you can fairly easily cut out those things. Now, I've had people who basically come crying that they want the government to make soy soy outlawed because they're tired of going into the stores and all the time they spend reading labels. And I say, just stop. If it's got a label, don't eat it. Put the time and energy into cooking real food, which is so much better anyway. Yeah. No, I agree. When I was eating vegetables, which I don't anymore, uh, I don't think they're health food at all. But but one of the simple hacks that I made was I was buying salad dressing from expensive places like Whole Foods and realizing like, wow, this got a lot of soy. It was very simple for me to take a blender and do like three parts olive oil and one part balsamic vinegar, blend up my own salad dressing, which was you know, really good. I thought it tasted way better than the stuff you could buy at the store and it didn't have any of that stuff. So you're right. Like simple hacks in the kitchen can get you away from some of this stuff. Yeah. And there, there are more products now that are soy free. Um, some of the Mark systems products that are in the stores, I mean, the avocado oil dressings. I mean, if people absolutely insist on something that's, you know, ready made in a bottle. Wow. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad. And, and, and mayos. I mean, there's ways to avoid soy, even eating some some foods, but you have to you have to watch out for things like what's in there instead. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, if it's pea protein, it's heavily processed. It's going to have all sorts of carcinogens from the processing. Uh, if it's canola oil, we already discussed that. Many many problems with that. So we have to be, you know, buyer beware. Yeah. I- Again, I'll go back to this point. This is why I eat carnivore. I don't have to think about any of that stuff. If I eat eggs and meat, I know that I'm getting all of the nutrients in the most absorbable form, and I don't have to think about any of that. It's all so simple and done. Well, I'm with you on that because the difficulty with trying to avoid oxalates, for example, is it's actually the same point if you're trying, if you're wondering about soybeans and and what the content is of the isoflavins, the estrogenic component. 
Well, guess what? The oxalate content, the lectin content, the isoflavin content, it varies from year to year. How much rain was there that year? Was it dry? Was it hot? Was it in the south? Was it in the Midwest? What country was it in? The levels go up and down. Oh, and the, the type of soybean oil be a factor as well. And we get the same thing. The oxalate content, you want to see it in a nice a nice chart, but all you can do is make guesstimates. That's a really, really good point. I don't know why I hadn't considered that, that, yeah, even if you're measuring it, you you really just don't know year to year. Conditions change, which changes the food. So I think that's a really great point. Is there anything else before we leave soy in this conversation? Is there anything else you want us to know about soy? Uh, it would be the same thing I'd say about any so-called health food beware of all these promises, the silver bullets, the miracle fixes. And uh, there's usually a whole lot of industry and money behind it. Yep. I love that. I'm so much looking forward to Sally Norton's new book, which is coming out soon called Toxic Superfoods, which I think is a wonderful title. Again, we're sold. It's a great book. Yeah. I endorsed it. Um, She's so on the money with that. Yeah. Oh. I, I, should, I shouldn't have said that on the money because she's free of that, that kind of corruption. Right. Totally. No, that's a, that's a great phrase to use. I'm so jealous you've already gotten to read it. I've got it on my pre-order. So I can't wait for that to come out. And Good. I think it's such a powerful message because you're right. We, we are sold a bag of goods when we're told that throwing spinach and beets and all this stuff and, and pouring soy milk into our blenders in the morning is the best thing that we could do for health. And it's really wrecking people. So yeah. It is wrecking people. Uh, I, I work with clients and I had a client who was spending, she'd at this point spent more than $10,000 Botoxing her vagina. You can't make this stuff up. But she would not give up her green smoothie. And oxalates are so associated with vulvar pain. And the only way she could have sex and maintain her marriage was to basically eliminate all feeling. That is astounding. But she would not consider giving up her green smoothie. That is astounding. It doesn't even taste that good. Like, come on, like you can, you can go the rest of your life without spinach. It's really not that good anyway, unless you're Popeye, like, come on. I know, but you think about it, the spinach, the almond milk, um, I mean, for that matter, beet juice. I mean, you can go on and on and on. It's a lot of high oxalate stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so we spent most of this conversation talking about ways to destroy ourselves and destroy our health. You've also <laughs> written another book, which is amazing, which is how to restore some of these things. We love talking about bone broth. Why did you decide to co-author that book about bone broth? Yeah, I started researching bone broth um, before everybody else. I was sort of the pioneer there. Uh, I wrote a paper back in little after 2000, actually part of my PhD program too, on proline and glycine and why these so-called conditionally amino acids were essential for good health. And how, while the body theoretically can produce those amino acids from whatever else we're eating, the fact is most people aren't healthy enough to do so. So I started looking into that and the, the obvious question came, well, how can we do this with food? And that leads us to collagen, gelatin, bone broth. 
and basically a nose to tail diet that includes every part of the animal, including making soup out of the bones and joints and skin even. Yeah, that's awesome. Do we even know all of the things that are in bone broth? Are we going to continue to learn about more and more of these elements and, and how they can help us heal? Well, we have to remember that there probably won't be any stories, uh, any studies on bone broth because nobody can make any money on selling soup. Great point. However, there's been quite a lot of research. So I had a lot to draw on for the book. It's just I didn't have it on broth itself. I had all these amazing 19th and early 20th century studies on gelatin, and there's been studies on amino acids like glycine, choline, glutamine that are heavily in bone broth. And Dr. John F. Cruden's research on cartilage, which is a more specific type of collagen by which we can regenerate joints and heal autoimmune problems and a lot of things. So if you're making your own bone broth, you're going to get cartilage because you're going to be using a lot of joints. Yeah. If you're just making a collagen powder, it's coming from the skin and you're not going to get a full spectrum. But the gelatin studies were, were fascinating. There was this old guy, Nathan Gotthoffer, who spent most of his life researching gelatin. And he did a whole book on it um, that put you to sleep, but an amazing life's work. And in the 19th century, I, I often joke that they thought gelatin was sort of the soy protein of the 19th century. They had this idea that they could make gelatin and that could make people super healthy. It could solve the problems of world hunger. We could give it to poor people and they would gain the nutrition. And they found out that it didn't work as well as anybody hoped. So it wasn't looking good for gelatin for a bit. They had headlines like dogs died from gelatin. If you actually look at the study, which I've looked at, the problem was the dogs didn't die from the gelatin. The dogs died of starvation because the gelatin tasted so bad the dogs wouldn't eat it. Wow. <laughs> bit so, of a difference yeah, there. But... Bit of a difference there. Wow. But what we really found from those studies is that gelatin alone, and for that matter, bone broth alone, is not going to give you all the nutrition you need. You also need the meat. You need the organ meats. The gelatin is part of the package. It's not the whole package. Yeah, that's a really great so point. So it's essential to be really healthy. But live on it alone? I don't think so. Maybe yeah. you want to do it for a little while as sort of a bone broth um, fast for a few days, that kind of thing. That, that can be useful. It can be good for healing, a leaky gut for digestive distress, a really good thing to be eating, say, if you're sick. And in the late 18th through the mid 20th century, all the cookbooks had chapters on what they called invalid cooking or convalescent cookery, where they were recommending soups and stews and gravies to help the poor sick person's faulty digestion. So is that why we moved away from using broth in the middle of the last century, like you said? Is it because canning had, had started and increased during the war and, and that industry had kind of started up? And uh, Yeah. Where did we go from consuming broth to where I was brought up on bullion cubes? Yeah, I was brought up on bullion cubes, too. <laughs> uh, and there's an interesting story behind all that stuff. The original 
things that they did were were done for the military because as we went into the modern world, the armies got bigger and bigger and they couldn't live off the land. So they had to be able to carry food with them. So they were trying to find ways to dry out the gelatin, dry out the broth so they could carry it with them. And there was a lot of money put into finding ways to can broth and ultimately there's a very interesting story there, but Campbell's soup is in the picture. And the original Campbell's soup, they they took pride in healthy ingredients. The uh, one of the founders there was a very amazing chef trained in Paris, no less. Wow. He wanted only the the right kinds of tomatoes, the quality. And so we had a quality product for quite a long time, but then um, the commercial business got into it and we got to make everything cheap, cheap, cheap. And now it's just the, the Campbell soups now bear no relationship to the way they started out. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. No surprise there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you are more in favor of making your own bone broth and so are we, we like to make it around here. Um, especially as the months get a little colder, I think it's a nice, just warming sensation to have a drinking broth. Um, are there any commercial products broth that you really like, or is it something that you really recommend that people do at home? Well, I think it's always good to make your own. Uh, but I have some ready-made products in my freezer because there's always times when you say you run out of bones, you run out of time, or maybe it's 108 degrees in Texas where I live and maybe I don't want the soup kettle going all day. That's right. So I have some, there are some good brands, but it needs to be basically frozen. Uh, and whatever the brand is, if it does not gel in your refrigerator, it's not a quality product. That's a great tip. So that's the tip. Uh, for some people that I recommend going on bone broth, um, I work with a, a lot of athletes and their their diets may have improved to the point where they're keto or they're certainly eating meat, but they don't eat the organ meats and they're not doing much broth. And many of them are suffering injuries. So I'm recommending broth as a way to prevent injuries and to recover far more quickly from injuries. And those people, to start, we often need to recommend some of the ready-made products just so they can taste it, so they can get started. And then bit by bit, they introduce it into their own kitchens and get the knack of it. Yeah, that's amazing. There's all those amazing stories from, what, about a decade ago when Dr. Kate Shanahan started working with the LA Lakers and started getting them on more natural foods, including bone broth. And there was anecdote where the late uh, Kobe Bryant rolled his ankle and, and, and or bust up his ankle pretty good. I want to say it was going to be like a six week injury. And on the spot, they called the hotel where he was staying to tell the chef, like start whipping up some bone broth, get this ready. And he healed up way faster, and was able to play a lot more games. And, and he attributed that a lot to bone broth. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, when my kids were growing up, uh, I was doing karate with them because I'm not somebody who's going to just sit on my butt and watch. Um, <laughs> if I'm going to be there, I might as well do it too. And I'm 30, 40 years older than most of the people there. And nonetheless, I'm the only one who's not having joint problems, not having the knee problems, not getting the injuries. And 
incredible. It's, it's kind of sobering to see what a mess some of these young people are. They're yeah. trying to be fit, but they're they're malnourished and they're not they're not healthy. Yep, totally. It's very easy to see just looking around. Like you can see it in people. It's really sad. So so when we're making our broth, are there certain combinations of different bones we should be using? How much of the joints should we be using? Should we be throwing things like chicken skin in? How do we how do we construct really delicious and very healthy broth? The biggest mistake I see most people making is uh, they use a whole lot of water and maybe throw in a drumstick or two and they wonder why they've got no flavor. So basically you fill up the pan with the bones or the chicken carcass or whatever. So it's pretty full of the of the meat and the bones and the joints and the skin and you cover that with water. And then you're going to get something that's got a pretty rich flavor. So uh, in terms of improving the flavor and the texture and the appearance. Uh, the professional chefs will always remove the fat layer from the top and then it's going to look better, taste better. It's not that the fat layer is all that bad. It's just a really good broth. We'll, we'll have it gone. And you can basically work with any kind of recipe you like. Uh, do you like uh, spicy flavors? Do you like... Um, you know, it being really basic. The basic broth is a good plan. And then later, after you've got the broth, you can make a quick dinner that's a soup or a stew. Um, maybe you want to make minestrone. Maybe you want to make uh, chicken rice. Uh, whatever you want to make, you start with the broth, yeah. add the meat and vegetables, and end up with the soup you want. Yeah. Maybe. If you're making, say, a vegetable soup, you don't want those vegetables cooking for... 10 hours, they're going to be pretty soggy. And some of them have strong flavors. They'll ruin your broth. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad that you made that point. And for people who don't choose to eat like you and I, you know, more carnivore, like if somebody wants to have rice, a simple hack is just add broth to your rice. It makes it so much better anyway. That's a great way to get more broth in. It makes it more digestible. The flavor's better. Uh, Everything about it's better. Yeah. And that way you can have, say, a stir fry on rice that's got, you've got your collagen, you've got a little meat, um, you've got the vegetables if that's what you want, you've got the rice if that's what you want, and it's all just uh, much, much better. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so when I have the time and I'm thinking critically about, you know, making bone broth, I'm going to try to find the best quality bones from the best animals that I possibly can. You know, if I can find pasture raised, you know, chicken, for example, I'm going to try to do that. And I'm also going to be cooking it in an actual pot on the stovetop, which takes a really long time. All of that said, like in a pinch, if, if I don't have a bunch of time, I know that I can go grab a rotisserie chicken and I can cut off all the meat, set that to the side, throw this carcass into an instant pot, throw some, you know, filtered water. It's not the best. I wish I was getting spring water. Um, it's not the best, but I can throw some salt in there, seal the thing up. And in three or four hours, I know that I've got broth that's so good and yummy. And yeah, maybe it's not the highest, highest quality, but it's, it's in my opinion, damn close. What would you say about both the quality of ingredients and, and the process of cooking broth? I've done that myself. It's very fast. Um, I used to get chickens ready-made sometimes when I lived in Albuquerque and there was uh, uh, places where there was different flavors, both at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, actually. Interesting. And not the highest quality, um, but not the worst either. 
Um, but one could say, I guess, get Costco chickens or supermarket chickens. And, you know, that's better than nothing, really. Yeah. I mean, it's better than nothing, uh, much better than fast food. And with the herbal combinations that you'll, you'll get all sorts of different, different soups, different flavors. So fun it's, to mess with. It is so easy, and I've done that. You you really can't fail. You've got the flavor. You've got you're going to end up with a broth of gels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I even like combining you know chicken with beef bones from time to time, and that adds an interesting nuance. And yeah, I mean, again, on a on a cold day, it's just it's so yummy to have like something that's that's so good and tasty, but actually like you can feel it inside you. It feels amazing. It feels like it really is healing. And so I'm so glad that we were able to talk today about the crap that you shouldn't be eating, but also the stuff that you really should be taking the time to think about and prepare in bone broth. So Kayla, Daniel, thank you so very much for having this conversation with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Where can people go to find you and connect with you and your work? My website is drkayladaniel.com. And I'm also on Facebook. Perfect. And um, I do respond to people. Uh, people are welcome to contact me, ask questions. Uh, my email is wholenutritionist at earthlink.net. Perfect. Awesome. That is very generous and kind of you. And no surprise at all that you'd open yourself up to help our listeners and people out there who have questions. I will make sure to link all of that in the show notes. Dr. Kayla Daniel, thank you so very much. Like I said, for all of your interesting work, really being a pioneer in this field and showing us all the harms of soy, but also teaching us about broth and the things that we can do for our own health. So thank you so very much for all of your work. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. It was fun. Such an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long-form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to 
these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon. Check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.